Hey there, welcome to Bandits Keep. I'm Daniel, and I recorded a little thing the other day, <laughs> kind of talking a little bit about um, how we interpret rules or how we read rules, and also I went off on a little bit of a tangent. So I talk a little bit about fudging and about, not a lot about fudging, but a little bit about that and the idea of um, of interpreting the way rules are written and how maybe some of the older games, uh, well, I mean, I'll let you listen to it. Then we have a bunch of calls um, from various people, and uh, yeah. And then that's it. I will get back into the chain mail thing uh, next uh, episode. I'm going to sit down actually as soon as I release this and record a little bit of that. So look forward to that probably tomorrow. Uh, it's Monday now, so probably on Tuesday. So as usual, I'm not going to do a whole bunch of research. <laughs> I'm just going to talk from, from my heart, we'll say, about something. And I think it's really interesting, right? Um, the little chat that went on the other day on uh, – uh, I didn't discord about, you know, fudging, which this is not going to be about, um, I thought was really interesting because part of it came down to how one might interpret the words in a book, right? And I think that one of the goals of, I'm not going to say all modern RPGs, but certainly fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons is, oh, I'm going to pull an Andy and make coffee, is to make the rules as clear as possible. Like one virtue of edition, if you know, to me is that usually if you've got a question about the rules, if you actually read the words, like completely separate yourself from what you think it means, and you actually read the words, most of the stuff is very, very clear. It will state exactly how it works. And there's no room or very little room for interpretation. And then when you start trying to interpret it, that's when the rules seem confusing. If you just follow them literally as written, you will find that most of those rules make a heck of a lot of sense. But anyways, that's all I want to talk about. But when you look at something like first edition Dungeons and Dragons or OD&D, where things are, it's, you know, one of the things that I've seen uh, said, seen said, heard said, and I agree with is that the DMG, the first edition DMG is so cool because it's kind of like Gary Gygax just kind of talking to you, you as a DM, and he's kind of saying, hey, this is what I would do. This is kind of what you should do when you do this. He's giving you advice. It's different, and it's written in a different way. And because of that, some things seem to be contradictory, and that's because, just like me, I guess, right, he's got different opinions depending on what's going on. And I honestly believe, and, I, and I've said this before, when people talk about, oh, you can make rulings, but they have to be consistent. I don't actually believe that. I mean, I think they have to be consistent in the world. They have to make sense logically. But I don't think that every time you do a task, it needs to be handled the same way. I feel like if, again, I mentioned this before, if you're fording a river, you might be able to ford it by walking through the rushing water, and that might be a strength test. Or you might be able to jump from stone to stone, and that might be a dexterity test. There's no specific way to get across the river. It all comes down to what the players determine. Now, if... You're going to make somebody do a dexterity test for leaping from rock to rock. The next time they go to leap from rock to rock, yeah, you should probably do a dexterity test, right? Unless maybe it's very, the rocks are very far apart and they might not make it because they're not strong enough. Or unless some rocks are really slippery and some aren't, and maybe you'll make them make an intelligence test to know which rocks they should jump on. Any of that stuff can work, right? It really depends on what's going on in your situation. And I think keeping things fresh is what you want. My my idea would be like if you're in, if you're sitting at a game table and the players always know when something happens what die they have to pick up to rule because they know this is a that test. That to me is boring, right? I want every situation to feel a little different. 
Wow, I'm really going off topic here, but that's okay. <laughs> Maybe this is the topic, right? The idea that you're you're beholden to some kind of a you have to do it a certain way is just kind of silly to me. I think that it's a story you're telling together. Now, if I say make an dexterity chest to jump over the water, to jump across these rocks to the first player character, and then the next guy goes to roll, and he's like, and I'm like, no, no, you roll your strength. Okay, that might be a little bit weird unless you have a very specific way to do it, but situation to situation, I feel like you can change the rules. Not the rules, but the, the, the technique. And and again, it comes down to, I talked about this in the video, it comes down to this little bit of like a, for lack of a better word, a negotiation between the DM and the player. You don't want to just be like, if they're like, I'm going to jump across the rocks, you don't just go, okay, roll your dexterity, and then they fail, and then you're like, oh, you're dead. You say, okay, well, to jump across that, they look like this, it's going to be a little this, this, this. You're probably going to need to roll your dex because, you know, it's going to be hard to keep balance. And then they might say, oh, well, hold on. What if uh, the high dex character goes across first and then they hold a rope across on both sides so people have the rope to help for balance? Will that do something for us? You might just say, yeah, okay, now you can just make it across, right? Or, okay, you're going to get a bonus. And this is the negotiation. You don't just make people roll dice and then tell them the results after. That's kind of, I mean, that's not very fun. But anyways, that, oh, so one specific thing that we were talking about, though, was the in the fudging dice uh, thing was this, this I, I probably should go through it. I, if, somebody, if this becomes an interesting topic, I'm going to go through and read the thing and break it down exactly how I think. But I'll say this. Gygax basically says that sometimes the players do all the right things and then the dice just go against them. And in that case, you might say instead of having the dragon eat the person and kill them, you might just have their arm be ripped off. And not let, not have them die. Now you could look at that as fudging the dice. I do not. I think what's happening there is he's talking about narrative story and how things work, right? If you say to somebody, "Well, the dragon ripped your arm off, and now you don't have an arm, but you're you're and you're unconscious there on the ground, you know, at zero hit points, as opposed to well, it would be negative ten and and eighty, but it was we'll just say zero hit points for clarity." at zero hit points, that is much different than rolling to hit for the dragon than saying, no, the dragon misses. Or rolling to hit for the dragon and saying, you know, knowing the player has 10 hit points and going, oh, it does nine hit points of damage. If you do nine hit points of damage to a player with 10 hit points, they're still standing there fighting. They still have a hit point left. You just did something completely different. If you had the dragon rip their arm off, they are paying a massive consequence for their for their actions. Okay, it's a, it's a world of difference between those two things. And if you don't think it is, then I will make another uh, episode where I break down each piece of exactly what he says. Because, again, I'm just paraphrasing. Because I can tell you right now, it does not. Now, I could see somebody looking at that, at which was the situation, and saying, ooh, that sounds a little bit like fudging the dice. But, see, my issue with fudging the dice is that – I wasn't going to talk about that, but I am now – is that you're essentially lying to the players. In this situation – you would not be lying to the player. I mean, at least the way I read it, the way you're saying it, you're not lying to the players. You're, you're telling them, you rolled it. You should be dead, but instead, I'm just going to have your arm get ripped off. I mean, if the player if the player is like, no, no, I want to be dead, okay, fine. I mean, I think you could do that as well, right? I don't think that's really an issue. Uh, I believe, in fact, one of the things that people said, somebody said, now I can't remember, in the audio dungeon, they, they said, well, I wonder if people that are so for fudging the dice also roll in front of the players. Again, I would be more in favor of it if... If you rolled in front of me and I was a player and it's like, oh man, double crit. Oh, that sucks. You know what? I'm just going to make it one crit because I, at least I know you're doing it. I still probably wouldn't be for it, but at least I know you're doing it. My main issue with fudging is that you're lying. 
you're lying to the player and you're cheating. So that's the fudging thing. I don't want to get into a fudging conversation, although I suppose somebody might call in with that. Um, but what I will say is this. I think that the interpretation of how we see things is super, super interesting. And I wonder, um, you know, how many of the different things, because we're talking about the idea of like learning, because I was, I was talking about the idea of that you can learn D&D really well by reading Mulvey Basic, which is I still stand to, and much better than reading OSC, because OSC is a real kind of simplified, cleaned up version that looks really beautiful and it's an awesome typesetting or whatever. I'm not denying OSC is great, but OSC removes the editorial from the rules, which again, maybe people want, right? But the editorial is what tells you how the designer of the game intended you to play. So Gygax is telling you that sometimes it's worthwhile to just have somebody's arm be ripped off for awesome story than it is to just kill a PC. Sometimes. Most times, not. Most times, they should just die because that's just what happens and that's the game and you roll the dice. You know, and especially if they if they did something silly like poke the dragon's nose instead of sneaking past it and they're low level. I mean, you you know. So you really need to, this game is fluid. And I honestly believe that the best versions of D&D or the best versions of any RPGs that I've ever played were those versions, I'm going to call them versions, of the game where I sat at a table with the DM or I was the DM and everybody was on board with the idea that we are creating something unique here. We're not creating the exact carbon copy of the other table next to us at the convention. We're not creating an exact carbon copy of some other campaign you played in. We're not creating an exact carbon copy of what guy Gary Gygax did or Matt Mercer or any of these people that, that, that are known for having amazing campaigns, uh, Artisan. We're creating our story. And our story is something that is unique to us. And sometimes we're going to need to make adjustments to make it happen, right? So anyways, I think that's uh, all I have to say about that. And uh, yeah, let's move on. Okay, we got a lot of good calls today. Uh, we've got uh, Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. We've got John calling in again. We got Joe from Hindsightless and Spencer from Keep Off the Borderlands. So uh, before that, I've got a little disclaimer which I will play, and uh, then we will move forward. So I just want to say that I'm going through uh, these messages that I'm getting. I love that everybody calls in. I appreciate it, but um, and I'm not going to call out anybody in particular, but. If you call my show and you say things that are insulting, um, not to me necessarily, although possibly they're targeted at me, uh, or use things like unhealthy um, in your comments, um, I'm not going to play your messages. I don't uh, feel any obligation to air uh, negative things on my show. Uh, I love a good, lively conversation. I like people that don't agree with me. I like to learn from other people, but when you start putting out this like pseudo psychology, unhealthy, this, that relationships thing, that's not going to air in the show. Uh, put it on your own show if you got one. And if you don't have a show, go ahead and start a show. Anchor's free and feel free to put all that crap over there. But uh, okay, back to the positivity and let's have some messages. I'm actually not going to comment on the species question because I've got a caller that left me a bunch of messages about this prior to your show coming out, and I'll discuss it on my show here in a couple days. But as far as the core books, yeah, I think for the most part, it's not that we're cheap. It's just that really you don't need those extra books. 
you really deities and demigods is kind of neat but is there anything in de deities and demigods you don't really get from eve hamilton's mythology or you, you know g g whatever book on mythology books on mythologies world mythology you have of him especially if we're not statting them out as far as fiend folio this this will something we'll have to have a beer discuss it in person but this might be the end of beautiful friendship daniel I'll I'll give you usage dice, but I won't give you the fiend folio. Well, I will definitely have a beer with you. <laughs> now the question becomes: If you had to choose, would you uh, take the fiend folio over the original monster manual? You know, if you think about it, a lot of the monsters in the original monster manual are just monsters monsters from mythology, right? They're not necessarily D and D specific monsters. I mean, some are obviously, but. Um, I wonder, right? You could stat up a lot of things like Medusa and uh, Pegasus and unicorns and stuff like that uh, pretty simply once you knew the game. But uh, Fiendfolio does have a lot of kind of interesting, weird monsters. So, yeah, we may have to have a, uh, a thought about that. So what do you think? If you had to only have one monster book for AD&D, would it be Fiendfolio? I'm guessing you're just going to say, no, <laughs> I want both. But I'm curious what the answer is. As far as backgrounds... Yeah, I'm not, I have no issues with backgrounds and games, and I have no issues with whether you do them randomly or people come up with their own or all that. But do games really need mechanisms, mechanical ways for you to change your background? I get if it's a magic item, like a cursed magic item, and so you put that cursed magic item on and it now gives you a new character trait. Now all of a sudden you're greedy or you're brave or you change gender or whatever it is, right? So if it's a cursed magic item and that changes an aspect of character, I get that. but Let's say your, you know, your background is you're scared of spiders. Do you need a mechanical way to change that to now you're scared of snakes? Or, you, you know, I, I just don't see it. I don't see why that can't just be done narratively through role play without mechanisms and mechanics for those things. But I might be short-sighted on that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't disagree about being able to just change things about your character you know, through role play, not mechanically. But if, for instance, you're building a character and you have to roll, it's part of the system that you roll for something, and then you just don't want that to just be able to change it through role play just seems like a little bit, why'd you bother rolling? Uh, that, I guess that's what, what I mean there. You know, so I roll a flaw. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm addicted to, uh, you know, hashish. Is that even how you say that? Um, and then I just don't want to deal with it because the, you know, I'm just like, oh, I don't want to do it. You know, then your master puts it in front of me. I'm like, I'm not going to smoke that. It's like, well, but you rolled that flaw and, and for that flaw, you got some kind of benefit usually. So now it's like, you're just going to blow it off. I mean, in your example, afraid of one thing, afraid of another, I, I don't think that really matters unless you keep changing it every time you see the thing. No, no, I'm not afraid of spiders. I'm not afraid of those spiders. Oh no, I'm not afraid of snakes. Oh no, I'm not afraid. <laughs> oh man. This is the strongest argument against you should die yet that I'm hearing on your podcast right now. The fact that they're meant to simulate stories and the tension that happens in stories into simulationist games. Dungeons and Dragons, well, TSR Dungeons and Dragons at its core is a simulationist game. Yes. So much more so than a narrative game with metacurrency. So when you import something to, to add story beats to a simulation, it, it doesn't work. It's I, I'm with you on this, Daniel, more so than you are, I think. I, I think this is the strongest argument yet not to use usage dice because I'm against the idea of 
really pre-scripted adventures step-by-step where players are just drug along by the news, by the GM. So, yeah, this is... Now, that's not saying usage dice can't be used in more narrative games where there are different rules. But this is definitely the strongest argument yet why they shouldn't be used in simulationist games. Funny enough, on one of these shows, maybe Bandit's Keep, I suggested that, that you roll the usage die along with your hit die to see if you ran out of ammo or not. But I still am against it. I, I think you're better off counting beans and bullets. I really am. Um, maybe for intangibles. I know in Car Rodriguez, the gemologist presents simulationist Twilight 2000 fourth edition. He's using usage die for food and all because it, it was felt that it's too hard to track rations and things, which, you know, you're tracking other things. So maybe in the end, the food wasn't, isn't that big of a deal compared to some of the other things that you need to track. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty much with you against usage dice, but now you're going to start using them. You're putting me in a bad place here, Daniel. Bad place. Okay, got to record that answer because a group of loud cars, clearly not electric cars, just drove by. And uh, apparently the noise cancellation like tries to do stuff and it made my voice all weird. I sounded like Cher for a second there. But, uh, oh, it might happen again because I hear another car going by. But we'll see. Anyways, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to play a game with entirely usage die. But uh, I can see why Carl might use it. Um, it's a simpler single role to handle both the idea that something could be wasted, like wasted through uh, spoilage uh, and used up, right? So if you were going to do it more simulationist, right, you might say, well, there's X amount of food, you know, this is this many days rations, but then there's also X percentage chance that so many of them will go bad. So you can, putting them to a single die roll, I could see that being a thing. I don't think it's a thing. And honestly, so I ran a, in a Sarshin Swordsman source of Hyboria, we ran one campaign where they had to travel across the desert for, I can't, was it 10 days or something? And they had like literally barrels of water. Each barrel held so much water. And each day they drank so much and the horses drank so much, whatever. And I literally just had a little piece of paper that just knocked it off every day. I didn't even make the players do it. I just kept track of it. And I would just tell them, I'd say, you check your inventory. You have this much water, this much this, uh, you know. And if something happened, like if, when they were attacked or whatever, because they were wagons, uh, there'd be a chance like someone might get damaged, you know. And then, of course, they'd lose water. But uh it's not. It's not that difficult. I just. I just don't see. I'm just not winning the. The the argument with myself here as I'm trying to do. Oh, but I will say, yeah, you may have mentioned that the, you roll the die at the same time. But at the time, I thought before uh, my fact checker Joe uh, jumped in, I thought that you rolled the usage die at the end of combat. But apparently, it's even more clunky because you roll it every single time you shoot an arrow. So yeah. I'm either riding the exercise bike, or doing something else. I'll let you decide. But. Yeah, playing other species, right? Like, I I love the idea of playing up a trait, a human trait like you were talking about. I really want to play the emotionless elf one day because I don't know if anyone's noticed, but I'm a little bit of an emotional dude. <laughs> I would love to play a character just stone cold, you know? Like, they don't have that human empathy. That I think that would be, that'd be really fun. I'm also a... Uh, I'm a total monster party dude, you know, that, that started back in 3.0, D&D 3.0, but yeah, man, I, I tend to run those parties, 
I like playing the different species and stuff. I think it's fun. And you're totally right about how if everything is weird, nothing is weird. In the worlds I tend to run, though, like as much as I love the idea of the monster party, uh, things are pretty well blended in. Like, I'm thinking of the last campaign. Uh, the city that they were in was primarily humans, but there was a healthy share of halflings, dwarves, not elves. Elves were very rare in this world. Uh, but there were goblins. Goblins was a, you know, a sentient humanoid race that was part of societies and stuff. So there were goblins too, uh, some were creatures, but those were kind of sneaky. Nobody knew that they were were creatures, but primarily it was human. So yeah, as much as I love monster parties, my worlds are usually primarily human. Yeah, the elves in my world were basically Fremen. <laughs> they were badass warriors that lived in the desert that fought demons all the time instead of sandworms. And they couldn't, they couldn't reproduce at first. There's a whole thing with the curse, but there was a finite, there was only, I forget how many I said, probably some numeral like 777 or something, 777. I don't remember. Anyway, that's not important. But yeah, you know, play the other species with a little twist, like you were saying, man. Nothing wrong with playing them primarily as humans with pointy ears because it'd be super hard to do anything else. But, you know, give them a little twist, a little fun. And you're right, it is more fun to role play the flaws. Peace out. Oh, that sounds super cool. I like the idea of, of the uh, the elves being like unable to reproduce or there's a small amount of them or something. I, I like doing that, like kind of whatever the race might be. Um, it could be elves, which is nice to use kind of a, what I would consider a primary race. You know, most people would consider there'd be a lot of elves. So that makes it really cool. Same thing if you did it with dwarves or halflings. Less so if you did it with like tieflings, because I think depending on who you're playing with, they're probably not considered something that you see a lot of. So yeah, I love that. I love that idea. So, you know, what I, I also played my, my long 5e campaign, which would be the one that the party had the most monstrous races. Um, yeah, it was mostly human-centric. And I, I did kind of do the, the, the thing, but I gave plenty of warning to the party. I said, you know, you're an Aarakocra. Uh, you, these people will think of you as a monster. You need to be careful. And, uh, yeah, they, they weren't too careful, <laughs> which led to some, some awesome, you know, uh, fun. And the players were not mad because they had plenty of forewarning. They knew going into these towns that, like, if they walked in and they were a tiefling and they were bright red and had horns come out of their head, that people were going to be like, devil. Um, you know, but that's just how I played it. I didn't restrict anybody from playing uh, a race. I just let, or species, I just let them know that those were the issues. Um, so yeah, but I, I do, I think that like, as, as much as I, as I want to be like, I love human centric and I, and I do, I love reading the, all the fantasy. I also, you know, grew up on, you know, watching cartoons where it was all mixed and, <laughs> you know, you had like Thundercats or something, right. Where everybody was, uh, or, uh, you know, the, the Herculoids, you know, and all this like weird, like, uh, Conan, the, not Conan, uh, Thunder the Barbarian, you know, he had his, uh, his mock, uh, Ukla friend or whatever. So it's not like you can't have a good mix of, of the two, um, yeah, no, I think it's great, and and yeah, I died. I, now I got to see you play a Stone Cold Elf, Stone Cold Elf, Stone Cold Steve Elf. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Joe. 
So let me get this straight. You want a game that forces people to play non-humans a certain way, but doesn't force them to play humans a certain way. Short answer, yes. I said that games that use backgrounds, relationships, and motivations have specific mechanisms for those to change over time. Some games, you have a relationship that you burn to get a specific benefit, and then you create a new relationship to replace it. Other games allow you to create background elements that were previously undefined. And some games have motivations. Once you have accomplished a specific goal, that motivation is no longer relevant, and you create a new motivation. So your characters are continually evolving. So that's a really interesting point. And I wonder, right, if this kind of relates back a little bit to what Jason was talking about with the narrative, you know, idea, can we learn something from these narrative games and put them into our more OSR type games? Now you're, you know, if you're playing that kind of game. Now, <laughs> it's interesting you say this kind of thing, like you burn this relationship, you change this thing or whatever. That is kind of how I like to play. However, I don't feel like I need or I desire mechanisms to do that. I don't think that's something I, I want in my games. It's just not my thing. So I get that they're there, and I actually think maybe they're good, for lack of a better word, learning tools for people to say, like, oh, this is possible in an RPG, if they don't see that that's possible. For me, I mean, I just, <laughs> of course... And this comes down to the character background thing I was talking about before, where I want to just kind of decide, oh, yeah, you know what? I, I have a brother because it, at one point I want to tell a story about my character, and it wasn't really relevant. And it's not uh, – I mean, obviously, you don't want to do it like, oh, yeah, I have a brother, and he owns this shop. You can, obviously, that would be BS, although maybe some games allow you to do that and if you're using meta currency, which is fine, but I'm saying in a game without it um, – <laughs> You know, you could just use it as a story. You start talking to a shopkeeper and you just decide that you're going to have a brother at that point. I actually like that kind of role play. That's what, that's what I do. Maybe that is not for everybody. But also, I think having these mechanisms is not for any everybody either. And I guess that's the great thing, right? There's all different ways to play. It's interesting that you picked spiders as an example of something you don't like characters being forced to react a certain way to. In real life, I have a phobia about spiders. When I see one, I react a certain way that I can't control. I freeze up. My heart starts racing. I'm almost in panic mode. But I had to face my phobia one day. A girl asked me to come over to her apartment to get rid of a spider, and I always catch them. I never kill them. And it was no regular spider. It was a Florida wolf spider, five inches across, like a skinnier but hairier tarantula and they move very fast. So I caught it in a Tupperware container and let it go outside. And since then, my phobia has been much more controllable. So that's an example of a real life situation where you have to face something and it changes you. Well, that's a very cool story. And I think if you do it in game, and again, there was no mechanic needed there, right? What you talked about with that spider is exactly how I would roleplay something. If somebody decided that they were going to have some kind of a fear and then they roleplayed through it, then they can decide on their own, hey, it's not an issue anymore. I don't want to... Like, I've literally had... I, I'm very fortunate to have great players. I'll just say that up front because having great players... <laughs> man, 
it makes life so much easier. I definitely have had great players who put in phobias and stuff that's not part of the game, and they will play their character that way. They will run from something or hide from something or say, I don't want to do that because of things that happen in-game or something that they decided. Typically, it's something that in-game, because I think I think we all think that's more fun, right? Where somebody has an incident where a zombie almost eats them and they get saved by the party. Then the next time there's zombies, that person is like, oh my God, no, 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 zombies, we don't want to fight them. That to me is more fun. If you're just making it up on a character sheet, I don't know. It's less it, to me. It's less fun. I like it to have actually happened in game. So if you write down you're afraid of spiders, so that you can get a plus three bonus against snakes, and then you you suddenly uh, run into spiders, and you're like, no, nah, you know what? My character is going to fight their phobia. I want a plus three against spiders. That's what I'm talking about. I think you need to actually play it out. It shouldn't be something you can just swap. I think it needs to happen in game, in, in order for it to be fun for the entire table. Can you do it for roleplay purposes? Sure. And again, I'll point out that probably the most meta game that I've that I've run a long campaign in, in a while is Coriolis. And in fact, between sessions and stuff, you can make changes to like your values and those kind of things, uh, you know, freely. So I mean, it's not like you can't do that in those games. But I always recommend to my players that they do it based on things that have happened, and that's what they do. You know, they don't just suddenly decide they don't like something or they do like something because they just randomly decided to be fun. Once the game starts, it's based on things that happen in the game. So let me get this straight. You want players to spend a fair amount of time, both in-game and out-of-game, tracking resources that the GM is then going to cause them to run out of when it's convenient for dramatic effect. No, absolutely not. If you are tracking resources, then uh, then you're tracking resources. I don't understand the GM makes you run out of. I mean, things can happen in the game, obviously, where you would lose some kind of an item. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm not. I may have been talking about I don't remember what I said that. I don't think I said that. But if I did, just to clarify, absolutely not. You track resources so that you don't run out. You, you look at it, you go, oh, man, I only have 10 arrows. I'm not going to use an arrow right now. Um, if the GM then just goes, nope, you have no arrows, and you're like, well, I have 10, and they're like, nope, you don't, no. <laughs> I, I've, I definitely am not for that. Uh, nor should you have to, if you keep up with it when you're playing, track things out of game, unless you're prepping for something. Like sometimes if we're doing a long journey, I'll do something in the chat with my groups so that we don't spend you know, table time talking about how much water and rations they're going to bring. Uh, and honestly, most of the time, if they just say they want to get that stuff, I'll just sit down in my DM prep and I'll just write down what they've got and tell them how much gold it costs. It's not really a big deal. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I honestly don't think that these things are, are, are that difficult to track. And I think it makes it part of the game. Uh, it's just like mapping. It's just like any other part of the game, really. And I think when you start removing certain things from the game, it changes the feel that may or may not work for you, I guess, at your table. But uh, certainly... I would not just immediately. Now, I would say that things like metacurrency and usage die do exactly what you're saying, where all of a sudden you don't have something even though you planned for it. That's more along the lines of things that I'm opposed to. If you count your rations, you've got the rations unless something happens. Now, if I roll a wandering monster, a bear, when you're in your camp at night and it charges up and wants to eat the rations, you know, you can either defend the rations or let it eat it. I mean, that's up to you. And again, that is another decision that players get to make. Hey Daniel, Spencer here. I'm just listening to um, you know, how to play other species 
and it's about seven minutes in so i figured that's a good time to call isn't it um when i've played other sort of fantasy folk in the past you know i've gone for the the obvious thing of uh hobbits constantly thinking about food uh kind of curmudgeonly dwarves who don't think that everybody else is putting in as much effort as they are um uh, when it comes to elves, I've not played an elf very often, but when I have, I've kind of, I've tried to make them a bit more sort of disengaged, maybe a less concerned with human affairs, a bit more kind of uh, swashbuckly, perhaps, and gung-ho. Frivolous, I think, is the word I was looking for there. Um, so I guess what I, what I kind of zone in on is maybe the, the possible cultural differences rather than the, the physical differences. But, um, I think, yeah, longevity, um, would, would be, would impact that, you know, the way people live their lives and, um, how different um, species might be a little out of sync with each other so uh, yeah great episode I'm going back to listen to more uh, you know what I think that those those are kind of classic ways to play those species and and there's a reason why things are classic right I just I just saw a, a meme come up on uh, Twitter where they were like oh if I could add a dollar for every uh, rogue who grew up with a bad background well, there's reason why things are tropes, right? Because they work and because they're fun to play and stuff. So I don't see a problem with that at all. I, I actually really love that. I, I like how you phrase that too, out of sync. That's a good way to think of it, right? Because if, if somebody has all the time in the world, uh, I remember that uh, I'm from Massachusetts originally. This will probably mean nothing to people who aren't necessarily from the States. Maybe it will. Uh, and of course, from New York now, and you can hear me talking really fast. Uh, <laughs> I moved to Florida, uh, which is the South, you know, <laughs> and in the South, People tend to do things a little slower. So, you know, you would get to a place, uh, you know, you know, I grew up with the, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're 10 minutes late, uh, get done, get done, get done. And you get to the South and people are kind of moseying along and they're like, oh, hey, how are you doing today? That's my terrible Southern accent. <laughs> and at first it was like, what are you doing? Let's get this, you know, but then after a while, I lived there for a while. Then all of a sudden I'm, I would come up North and, and I'd be like, Hey, how are you doing today? So I definitely think that like how and where you're brought up and, and can it affect your sense of time. So I think maybe again, out of sync is a nice way to say phrase it, but also cultural, right? I think that that can be important too, because an elf that grows up, uh, you know, let's say it, with humans might have that might seem strange to other elves when they interact with them because they're acting. Why are you rushing so much around like the humans? So, uh, yeah, I, I like that out of sync. Okay, so I do have a possible use for usage dice. I know I skewered them in one of my previous calls where they don't belong in simulationist games at all. But you know what? I can think of a use case for usage dice. And this is after a battle with armor or with anything that has a durability. So if you include durability in your game and if durability, you know, so items break or wear down, 
And if durability does not automatically go down after battle or durability doesn't go down just when you roll failure, like a one, the durability drops down one, that's a way to do it. Or you can roll usage dice and assign usage dice for the durability. So you're in a battle, you take some hits, and then you roll usage dice to see if your armor degrades after the battle's over. So I could see that being a good use for usage dice. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I think as long as when you roll the usage die, I guess the last usage die, you would your armor wouldn't just like fall apart. That'd be silly, right? Like almost like a Looney Tunes cartoon, right? The war, the fight's over, and all of a sudden you look down, and your armor falls to the ground. <laughs> I mean, you need to have a way to 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 track it so that um, at some point, I guess it becomes less. Uh, you got plate armor, you fail the usage die. It's not just like, okay, well, it went down one usage. It's more like you fail the usage die, now it's worse by one armor class. Uh, that might work, in my opinion. It's funny, there was a... Now, I'll, I'll try to put it at the end of the episode somewhere if I can think of it. Uh, I was driving, and I thought of a use for usage die. And I was like, oh, that would be a perfect use for it. But it had nothing to do with combat or any tracking things. It was more of like an abstract. So, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think that it's... Uh, I think the, the statement I made to my friend I was driving with her was that I think the problem with usage die in my uh, mind is the name of it because it implies how many uses you have or how much you've used something. And I think it's more effective for things that don't actually have use, but instead are more like ongoing effects for, for lack of a better way to say it. So anyways, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess beating up your armor would be an ongoing effect if you want to track that stuff. Okay, thank you to all of my callers. Thank you for you guys listening. Again, if you want to call in, um, you know, with these various topics, go for it. I am going to start sliding the podcast back in the direction of uh, its original kind of purpose, which was OD&D with Chainmail. I do have a few uh, little tweaks that I've uh, kind of finishing up the OD&D with Chainmail um, kind of supplement, if you will. Uh, before I start making it into a full-fledged RPG, which it'll probably be. But I think before that's done, the Chainmail RPG will be, uh, whatever it's going to be called, will be um, be my focus. So, uh, yeah, looking for names, um, uh, looking for feedback for you guys, uh, from you guys, I should say, about this. I think it'd be kind of fun to, to bounce things off people, do some play tests and stuff. So if people are interested, um, you know, certainly hit me up on uh, the Audio Dungeon Discord or here. And uh, we could start messing around a bit. I already, I mean, obviously I have Chainmail, so <laughs> I could play it right this second. But I, what I want to do is uh, wheel, wheel, wield, that's not the right word, weed out <laughs> the things in Chainmail that aren't necessary in my mind to get the game going, um, simplify the game a little bit. I don't want it to be a, a, a tactical war game, right? I don't want it to be necessarily a miniature war game, although I, you, you could certainly use miniatures. Uh, but I'm still going to need things like I'll have to figure out like the movements and how some of the different, uh, things work. Cause, uh, you know, in certain sort and source way, we, we might want cavalry charges and things like that. So we're going to want to know all that stuff. So, uh, I'll have to use parts of that as well. In any case, uh, probably talk a little bit more about that in the next podcast, which I'm about to sit down to do after I release this. So you should get a little taste of that tomorrow. And I have some calls specifically about that, that I will, uh, play that. So thanks again. And I'll talk to you later.